as that continued to progress, I had these moments where I was just like, this, something doesn't feel right here. Like this cannot be quite it. And as I started to question my sort of underlying beliefs that led me to make the decisions that led me to where I was, that's when there, there was something that I heard uh, and I think it was a book, but it just said, if you want to become wealthy, you have to pursue wealth. Stop treating money as a byproduct of something that's going to come because you're doing what you love. That doesn't mean that you can't make money. And in many ways, I think that you should be pursuing things that you enjoy while also making money, but you cannot separate the two and neglect one thinking that the other, that, you know, money is going to just follow by some amazing, you know, divine intervention. This is Better Wealth with Caleb Williams. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Better Wealth Podcast. I am here with Chris Hanna. And where do I begin, man? I mean, you have so many things that we can talk about. We could talk about your involvement with the UFC and how you work with entrepreneurs. We could talk about your history of being in blackjack. We can talk about habits and, and the difference between investing versus gambling. So what I'm going to do is before we get into the nuts and bolts of habits and gambling versus investing and all these uh, quick wins that if you're an entrepreneur listening, this is like a must listen to. I want to get your quick story because I, I feel like it's pretty unique and uh, it will help paint the picture and, and help us along this podcast. And so first of all, thank you so much for being here. And it's going to be it's going to be a fun uh, podcast to do. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Caleb, for having me. I've, I've enjoyed your podcast and I'm excited to be on. Uh, yeah, happy to sort of dive into my story if that's what you'd like, if that's where you want to start. Yeah, so uh, a lot of my story really comes from the fact that I've just really wanted my independence for a long time, which I know a lot of entrepreneurs can resonate with. Even if you're not an entrepreneur right now, uh, it, if you feel that sort of fire in you, you may be an entrepreneur and not really know it. Um, so that that just kind of followed me through many years through school, even through college, and at the opportunity to just make my first almost like real decision on my own, uh, you know, not really influenced by my parents, just out of college, essentially, which job do I want to take? What path do I want to start leading my life down? I decided I wanted to go count cards and play blackjack professionally. And I did that because I just felt like, you know, more and more we're realizing now that you don't have to work a traditional job. Like you don't have to go down that traditional route. And even the quote traditional route today is going to be different. You know, there's still going to be more traditional stuff that people do, but even that will be, I think, very different than what we, than what was, you know, even 20 years ago. So uh, yeah, that's how I got started. My roommate was a numbers guy and I, I knew he had that same sort of mentality. And so I reached out to him about six months before we graduated, as everyone's thinking about what they want to do after school. Uh, just said, Hey, I think we can really make some money counting cards. Do you want to do this with me? And he said, yes. So, uh, that's how we got started. And for just many years after that, I just, one thing led to the next, the next, it was, uh, again, very still non-traditional the whole way. Uh, most recently I, I had a realization, this is several years ago now that I really just didn't, I was lost with my personal finances, all despite having the formal background and sort of experience that I did in finance. That's what I went to school for. And so I just went down the rabbit hole of personal finance, started exploring more practical ways, what I felt uh, were more practical to manage my money. And as I started doing that successfully and recognizing that not only did I struggle with this, uh, and now that I figured it out, there are actually still all, you know, yeah. so many other people that are struggling with this. And uh, other people manage their money similar in similar ways that I do, but just not enough people are talking about it. So I just got myself out there, started reaching out to people. Um, yeah, you mentioned, I think the UFC, I started reaching out to UFC fighters because I have a very strong passion and love in, uh, in the UFC. So I started working with them and more recently have just been uh, putting myself out there for anyone who really just resonates with me and my message and, and wants to kind of uh, follow me along on this journey and, uh, and, and manage your money well so that you can actually go and, and live your dream. Well, what was the bridge for you when you were like, okay, you're, you're, you're doing your thing. And what was there like a aha moment where you're like, okay, something has to change. Or was it just very much gradual? You're like, <laughs> Hey, I'm like, you know, playing with people, um, and interacting with people that have a lot more money or you're around people that maybe make a lot more money, but are broke. Like, what was that transition where you're like, like a wake up moment? Yeah, I had a couple moments. So, uh, sleeping in my car, looking at storage units to live out of, like just doing these things with the underlying belief that if I did what I loved, the money was going to follow. 
I know it sounds freaking crazy to take it like kind of to that extreme, but I often do take things to the extreme for better or for worse. And so I, yeah, went down this non-traditional path was, um, eventually after blackjack sort of ran its course, uh, I picked up a bunch of different gig work because it allowed me to train jujitsu as often as I wanted to, which I was like, that was my thing, my passion. I was going all in on like, literally it was that. And then everything else, finances, health, everything. So, um, as I prioritize training sometimes five times a week, twice a day, all, all these different things, it just like, I was struggling to just even put food on the table because I was not willing to take a regular job or even a regular part-time job. So um, as that continued to progress, I had these moments where I was just like, this, something doesn't feel right here. Like there's, uh, this cannot be quite it. And as I started to question my sort of underlying beliefs that led me to make the decisions that led me to where I was, that's when there, there was something that I heard uh, and I think it was a book, but it just said, if you want to become wealthy, you have to pursue wealth. Stop treating money as a byproduct of something that's going to come because you're doing what you love. That doesn't mean that you can't make money. And in many ways, I think that you should be pursuing things that you enjoy while also making money, but you cannot separate the two and neglect one thinking that the other, that, you know, money is going to just follow by some amazing, you know, divine intervention. So uh, it, it was sort of a series of events. You know, it's interesting that you say that because uh, in the field that I'm in, a lot of people like like to like make fun or or like uh, like push down like the government or Wall Street or banks. And I have a unique perspective because I think it's I think we should study the the institutions that are really winning. Like, yeah. what is what is Wall Street actually doing versus what they're telling us to do? What are the banks mm. actually doing versus what they're telling us to do? And that it kind of goes exactly to what you're saying about studying wealth. And I feel like a, a lot of times we have like this like, oh, they just got lucky or, oh, they were born into money or like, and we just kind of like, um, just disrespect the, the path of, or the framework as it relates to building wealth with that. Um, so you, you kind of had that wake up moment. Was there any book or was there any like, um, quick path that you got into being like, okay, like the bridge between like, oh, this is actually going to be something that I'm going to pursue more. My follow-up question to that is what are some of your favorite books or, mm -hmm. Um, people in the industry that has really opened your eyes in, in the money journey? The first major eye-opener was Rich Dad, Poor Dad, yep. which I think it is for many people. And shortly after that, the Total Money Makeover, uh, not too long after that, uh, Tax-Free Wealth by Tom Wheelwright, not as well known, but just a very interesting take on, on uh, taxes. And uh, I mean, but even now, like Morgan Housel, I know you said you love the psychology of money. I do too. That was such an interesting read, phenomenal writer. Yes. Um, so, so it was some of those early books that definitely sparked my interest. Interestingly, though, what I found was lacking. What I was trying to search for was a practical way to manage my money know, and know where my money was going without tracking every single one of my expenses. It just felt like every, every person and book and everything was just sort of saying, look, if you want to get good with your money, you've got to track every expense. And I tried that in many different with many different tools as well. So like I tried classic Excel tracking. I even used pen and paper. Like I tried Mint and you need a budget and every dollar. And at the end of the day, I just did not want to do that for the rest of my life. I wanted to build more sustainable habits. So uh, it was in just feeling like there was a lack of and, and eventually sort of discovered this process that you know we can dive into. But as I started to discover that for myself, that's what again, as we talking about books, I just realized, oh, this is not really talked about enough. Let me start talking about this more. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I love the books that you talk about, like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, like the big epiphany was like, what is, what is an asset? What is a liability? Like cash flow, putting money back in your pocket. Tom Wheelwright, um, you know, this uh, concept of like the tax code being a treasure map. Oh, on how to I love find incentives. That. Like that was like an epiphany. It's like, oh, yeah. like, let's look at the tax code instead of like being afraid of it. Let's like lean into the incentives and play the game. You know, um, the psychology of money, love that book. And the epiphany that I had was like, Oh, what's the rate of return of having your money in a savings account because that could unlock other opportunities. And so I love that you mentioned like some of the key concepts that you get from that book or different books and how you bring that into your own process. My next question is I would love to dive into the process. I would love to dive into your framework. If I'm someone that's coming to you and saying, Chris, I got my pen and paper out. Obviously, I love your background. I, I love the, the way that you communicate. Talk to me about the steps that I need to take to 
become wealthy or whatever you call like the end goal. I, I, I don't want to put my spin on your framework. And so I'm going to be a student and I would love you to walk us through the process. Let's do it. So first let's identify the underlying goal that I'm looking at, which is you want to use your money in the most effective way possible to live the life of your dreams, whether or not you point a finger in that, at that and say, yeah, this is really what, what I'm, what I want is truly my dream or whatever you might call it. And, and not just how that impacts you, but how it impacts your friends, your family, your community, you know, strangers around the world. So when we look at it from that perspective, we, like all of the problems with traditional budgeting start to just sort of you know, explode and become so obvious. So in a, in a traditional budget, you really have to look at that before you can understand why, you know, what you need to do and why. So with a traditional budget, it aims to create, basically list out every single possible expense you could have in a whole bunch of different categories, track every single one of your expenses so that in the middle of the month, whether you're, you know, one, two, three, or four weeks in, you can know at any point in time, how much you have left to spend in each category. So as you're tracking expenses, you have to categorize them, subtract it from the original budgeted amount for that category. And, and as long as you're only using one single checking account, that's how you can, that's the only way you can actually make a plan for your money and stick to it. Once you recognize that, like that is just so tedious and so time consuming. And it's like, we don't want to do that. We want to use our money effectively. We don't actually need to know that you spent two bucks on a toothbrush or, you know, whatever. You just need to know, okay, how much am I putting to these major items in my life, whether it's savings, investments, fun money, living expenses. And, and the way that you can do that is by first deciding what to do with your money. So I, I, I would almost say just like forget this word budget for a second. Just think when money comes in, when you actually receive it, whether you are an employee, an entrepreneur, gig worker, hourly, whatever it is, when money comes in and before you spend a single cent of it, you have the opportunity to decide what to do with it. And even if money is really tight, like that doesn't take away the fact that you can actually look at your income on a sheet of paper, how much came in and say, I'm going to put this much towards my rent and all my living expenses. And that might only leave you with, let's say 25 bucks. Okay, cool. Well, what are you going to do with this extra 25 bucks? I know it sounds wild to think about it in that way, if you're so tight, but that habit that you develop takes you through to new levels of income as you start earning it. And so that first step is to decide what to do with your money. The second step is ensure that you stick to those decisions. So again, looking back at, at a traditional budget, the only way you can stick to your plan is by tracking and categorizing every expense constantly. Well, what you can do instead is if you, rather than have one checking account, have multiple checking accounts, I advise typically three and multiple savings accounts, you can now proactively decide what to do with your money and transfer that money into each account that has a specific purpose. When you do that, anytime middle of the month, if you want to stick to your decisions and your plan, all you do is open up your phone and look, oh, how much do I have left in this category? It truly is the beauty of the cash envelope system without all the frustrations that comes along with trying to turn a cashless society into your world that, that now involves cash. Like you don't get paid in, in, in cash. You don't spend money in cash typically. So let's take the beauty of the cash envelope system and just put it into bank accounts. Um, and, and as far as you know, the, the process goes, step three is you still want to know where your money is going. So in this process, you're not tracking every expense. The way that you keep track of where your money is going, though, is you are tracking your distributions. So as long as you're only using each account for its intended purpose, as long as you track your distributions into each account, you know where your money is going. It's not on a minutia basis, like line by line, but you don't need it to be either. You need to know, okay, how much is going to all my fixed and recurring expenses, my sort of variable or non-recurring needs and wants and to savings and investments. And, and then you can look back and say, I spent, I put this much money into building wealth, into investing in myself, into my living expense, whatever it might be. And, and that's all you really need to know. Yeah, no, I, I love that. Let's riff on this for a second, because one of the, the categories that we do with our clients is it's like the most basic is what do you save and what do you spend? Now that's, mm -hmm. those are like, that's like very, very basic. But if you make a hundred thousand dollars and you're saving 10,000, I can tell you that you consume 90. Now there's right. categories. Um, and then we do, we take that a step further and say, okay, what is a fixed expense? What is a variable expense and is it a need or is it a want? And it just, again, it's not realistic for um, our clients to do that on a month to month basis, but it's really a good exercise to do maybe on a quarterly basis, maybe once a year, do it with a coach like yourself, where you can, where you can start like 
analyzing and we we say this like when you start tracking it you control it um but i will say when i hear budget i think of diet and it and it sounds good for a week and then it's like ah i don't know if i really want to do that but i i i love the fact that you're uh, talking about you know being really conscientious of where your money's going making it simple i have a question what you said three bank accounts what are those categories is one for savings fixed and variable or how do you break that down yeah three spending accounts three checking accounts of which you really only need two debit cards so it's worth just recognizing or like speaking to my former self two or three years ago like if i had heard myself talking about bank accounts in this way it would have been a little scary because i'm only used to having one checking account one savings account but more and more banks now are you know trying to be competitive with one another and they're also basically allowing you to create almost as many accounts as you want that being said you still don't want a whole bunch of different accounts so if you're being strategic with it start with three checking accounts one is for all of your fixed and recurring expenses, subscriptions, debt payments, literally everything that comes out of your account on a consistent basis. Of course, it doesn't have to be that way, but that's the way I like to. It really simplifies um, that aspect of it. And it prevents one of the most frustrating things, which is like looking at your account in the middle of the month and it being a lot less than it was just a couple of days ago. That doesn't happen when you have that automatic money coming out from a separate account. So that's account number one. Account number two would be your... Uh, just kind of your your general or miscellaneous needs. That's food, gas. You know, if you've got kids and they have expenses, just that that takes a little bit of trial and error to figure out how much you need for that month. Um, you know, for a whole month, or if it's biweekly, how much you need to put in there every couple of weeks. Uh, and third category is your wants, your leisure, your guilt-free spending, and it becomes truly guilt-free when you are proactively putting money aside in that account that you know is only going to be used for that purpose. That's your checking and spending accounts for savings accounts. I think an emergency fund is great. Uh, I call it my wealth account to invest in yourself. You can call it, you know, whichever you might like. And um, if you're an entrepreneur, you should have a you know separate account for taxes. You can start to be more. You start. You can start to kind of go off a little bit more with the savings accounts because they all just sit there on your computer. It's not a hassle to think about like it is with your spending. If you had ten different spending categories, right? Interesting. Okay, and then you just you manage this all on online banking and it's like when money comes in, you kind of like divvy it up or do you automate the the allocation of money? Yeah, I often personally divvy it up myself as it comes in because the amounts are, you know, they change all the time as an entrepreneur. Um, so, but for clients that are employees and they have a stable biweekly salary, yeah. It takes some trial and error in the beginning to sort of figure out, you know, how much you actually want to have in each of your spending accounts. Um, you may be surprised yourself though, if you decide like, you know what, I think I need about this much in my leisure out of what I've made. And maybe at the end of the month, you come up a little bit under, a little bit over, like a little bit of trial and error doesn't hurt in the beginning and is in all, in all likelihood necessary. But after you get the hang of it, yeah, just automate that. So then all you have to do is literally just use your system as you've set it up. You know, if you're, if you're listening to this and saying, oh, this sounds like a lot of work, it, it, I think back to when I had the honor of interviewing Dr. Bill Danko, the author of Millionaire Next Door. And he and he pointed out in his research of like, people spend more time researching buying a car than they do, or going on vacation than they do like their whole entire financial life. And, and here's, here's the deal. Like, if you take the time on a biweekly or monthly basis to just be intentional about this, I think we would both agree that it doesn't really matter how many accounts. It's just, are you intentionally on a a frequent basis accounting for where your money's going, you're going to end up spending a lot less and you're going to be way more intentional about where your money's going. Um, you, you said something that made me have a follow-up question. You talked about debit cards. What is your thoughts on debit cards versus credit cards? And when you work with, with clients, like do you encourage them to get a credit card or do you see that being like a black hole that just enables you to spend more money? Credit cards are inherently more secure. So I like, that's like the first thing I think about, um, especially when you are spending lots of money and, you know, running transactions, even automated transactions. Like it's nice to have that, the, the security that a credit card offers. That being said, like when, again, if we go back to what you want out of a money management system, you want to use your money intentionally and you typically want to know between the periods that, like between the period that you decide what to do with your money and you actually like execute it until the next time that you decide to do with that next chunk of money or whatever it is, you want to know how much you have left to spend for the quote budgeted amount with a credit card. You can't really do that. Um, that, that the credit card just sort of lends itself to the same problems that 
you know, tracking every expense does. So it sort of depends on what you're looking for, but um, certainly for like, like I've got a client, she really loves having not just a one single needs account, but she likes having a separate account for food because that was one of her biggest expenses. And now she can just see exactly how much she has for food. So uh, yeah, use a debit card for that. And, but, but mix it up with the underlying principles in mind. Yeah. Yeah. So, so essentially uh, beware if you're using a credit card, it, you do have an advantage if you have diff- different bank accounts. And if one bank account pays off the credit card, but you're kind of working a month behind, I have people on the show that talk about travel hacking and um, I have over a million chase points. And so on, on one hand, that's like cool. And it's, you know, can be more convenient, but on another hand, um, that million chase points, if I'm being really frank, I probably overspent. And if I would have just saved money in some areas now it's business is a little bit tricky and gray as well, but there, you just have to, I mean, there's no pros and cons, like there's pros and cons to both. And it's just one of those things where you just need to have a system. Most people don't have a system. Um, what are, what are your thoughts on Dave Ramsey? Because I'm getting a lot of Dave Ramsey vibes from your, your system, but instead of doing the cash envelopes, I'm, I'm thinking that you're doing more like a, um, bank accounts. And so what, what is your thoughts? Like, where do you like where Dave Ramsey talks about and what do you like maybe disagree with? Um, because I, I love Dave Ramsey. I disagree with some of the things that he says, but overall, I think he has a, a lot of good that he's done, uh, for so many people. Yeah. I love Dave Ramsey too. And it's so funny because, uh, it's such an easy, like clickbait for people on YouTube or social, uh, to sort of like point fingers at Dave Ramsey. And so he says to do this, or, you know, his investment style is this, and you shouldn't, you know, uh, but, but if we're being frank, like, you know, he's probably helped more than 99% of all sort of financial folks combined just, just for, by the sheer number of years he's been doing this and, and like the research that he and his firm have done. So, um, no, of course, I, I don't agree with everything he says, but I don't agree with everything that any single person says, you know, so, uh, it's no different in that way, but uh, yeah, he's got some really solid fundamentals. Yeah. Very much like he's pay down the debt that's costing you money, you know, by all means, sure. Uh, put an emergency fund together. That helped me a lot in the beginning, you know, just so that you have a buffer against taking on consumer debt. Um, and, and and one more point to what we were just saying before about like the system and the, the length of the process, you know, really it's the setting everything up that takes more time than anything. I agree. You know, it, you know it's like, even if you were to bring a new TV in your house, you're like, okay, well, I want to set up the TV here and the speakers. I want to hook it up to this and connect the Wi-Fi. It's like, okay, that's going to take, it's going to take just about as much time for you to get this money management system set up as it does for you to do that. Um, then as once that's set up, you just take a remote and turn the TV on. And it's like a similar thing in that way. I, I a hundred percent agree with like setting up the foundation. Um, then, then from there it, it's way easier. Cause you don't have to like, you're just like, okay, this is the budget. This is the budget. Yeah. This is the budget. It's actually putting in the work to get open up the new accounts and, and setting a, a habitual time on the calendar where you're going to go through that. I know from being married now we went from having two separate accounts to bringing in in one. And one of the things that we do that's been really effective is just on a monthly basis. We just review our spending. Um, we don't have the multiple bank accounts at this point, which I, I love the idea, but for us tracking the spending has highlighted like, Oh, that's something that probably mm. we don't value. So let's not spend that this, this month. Whereas, you know, we spend multiple dollars a day just on health stuff because we value that, but it's an intentional decision. And it's one of those things where our first couple months of being married, it was kind of like a free for all. We were like two separate people. Um, and it, it was like, we weren't going to run out of money, but there were definitely areas that if we would have been proactive, we would have um, been way ahead of the game and maybe not spent money on things that we don't value. Yeah. And tracking uh, your spending is a great diagnostic tool. So like I, I talk a lot about it and, and sort of the cons of it, but truly, yeah, I mean, there is no better way to know exactly where your money is going than to look back at your expenses. And um, yeah, as long as it, it it's, you know, and some people, right. Some people like the apps and doing that. And, and, and to those folks, I would question like, you know, do you, are you really attacking the underlying problem or are you just riding a faster horse? Like, you know, so uh, it, that, that, as it goes that, um, you know, I don't know what Henry Ford said. Like if, if I ask the customers what they want, they say a faster horse, but really if you look at the underlying problem, like you're trying to get to A to B faster. Um, so yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a great diagnostic tool. Have you heard of the company cube money? I have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. What is your two cents? I mean, I've, I've interviewed the founder. Um, oh, cool. I don't personally work with them, but some of our clients have, and I've heard really good things. What is your thoughts on their system? Yeah, I think it's really neat because it does take the 
takes digital envelopes and allows you to divvy up your money, which again is what we're talking about here. There is the only reason that I don't um, personally use it, which doesn't mean that it couldn't be a phenomenal resource for other people, is just that there's an added step of taking out your phone to select which envelope you want the card, you know, the, the money to come out of. So, um, and just because I only have really two, like I said, two, two debit cards out of the three checking accounts. Cause I don't carry around a card for my like fixed and recurring expenses. You know, it just stays in my house, whatever. So, um, because I only have two cards, like it's, it's no problem for me. I got basically one for non-recurring needs, one for non-recurring wants. If I need something out of my savings, I will hop on my phone and transfer it into a, a checking account. But, um, but, but I, I, I love their idea and I've seen even more and more competitive, um, apps like them pop up. I, I really do think that this sort of style and whichever way you want to use it is just a natural progression forward. For those of you listening that are like, what's Cube Money? I'll make sure to put um, both of my interviews with the the one of the founders of Cube Money down in the description. But essentially, Cube Money is doing a very similar thing that you're talking about. Um, and it's essentially taking the cash envelope system and making it digital. So you have a card. I don't think they have Apple Pay quite yet, but they might. Mm. Um, you have a card and you essentially, when you buy something, like when you get money, you put it into digital envelopes. And when you go buy something, you open up your digital envelope, which puts money on the card and allows you to buy it. And their their whole spin to it, which is, I think, good and unique, is it's like a lot of people don't have the discipline to continue like the the budget because it's kind of mm. looking back. Whereas yep. they're saying, if you're proactive, of course, you're going to stick to it because you're not able to buy groceries if you don't. And so it's it's one of those, they, they took the the power of habit and the um, you know, the other people, I think James Clear wrote a good book on habits mm-hmm. and they really tried to incorporate that. And they're taking Dave Ramsey and what he's pioneered and making it, um, more innovative. Um, and I think there and other apps are getting more, um, like better when it comes to that. And again, it is a time investment, but for the people that I've heard that have actually done it, uh, they, they have, uh, raving reviews. And so anything you else want to add to that? I did, I, hopefully I didn't butcher no, no, no. I, I think that that was great. Yeah. I had done some research on my own. It's funny because like no matter what sort of industry or field of expertise that you are in or you're involved in, like as these things come up, like when I first heard about that, I was, I needed to learn all about it because I recognize that this is the next frontier of personal finance is being more intentional with your money because of the fact that we have access to all these online tools and apps and everything. Yep. Um, next question is debt. Okay. Mm. You have a debt framework. Um, I know I have a lot of opinions about this, but if you had, if someone came to you and said, okay, Dave Ramsey's saying all debt is bad. Robert Kiyosaki and Tom Wheelwright seem to be pretty bullish on debt. I don't know how to determine if good debt, bad debt. How would you answer that? And do you have a debt framework? Yeah. Don't borrow money that is ultimately going to, you know, cost you more money in the long run. So, and, and, you know, Borrow money by all means if you think that you can make a good investment and make more money on that debt than you could have otherwise. Um, you know, not the least of which is because you've got tax advantages when you're using debt. But uh, so I would say that's the general framework. And um, keeping in mind that there is more inherent, well, there's there's risk to using debt and to not using debt. And I think you talked about this in another podcast, just about like the opportunity cost of using your own money. And um, but but as a general rule of thumb, yeah, like I, I just don't use a credit card to go buy stupid stuff. Um, if it's ultimately, if it's ultimately going to be costing you more money than it would be to, to just pay for it in cash. We're, we're very aligned there. It's, it really comes down to, I think when we have the debt conversation, a lot of times it, it gets pushed into the buying decision. And I think what we need to do is separate that and say, number one, should you buy this thing? Should you buy that car? Should you mm. buy that house? Should you make that investment? And if the answer is yes, then next, the next question is what is the most efficient way to purchase that? And yeah. It's like, is is that going to help you um, become wealthier, give you more control, create more wealth, or is it going to do the exact opposite? And I think um, it's like one hand, uh, if I want to go into real estate, great. I'm not going to use a 30% credit card to buy that real estate. That would not be efficient. I would rather pay cash. Or I would, if I went to a bank and could get a 4% loan, that might be more efficient because there's other places that I would rather have my money growing or the, the, the use of that money somewhere else would get me to where I want to go. And so really the debt framework in my humble opinion should be, should you buy this thing? And if the answer is yes, what is the most efficient way to do that? And don't lie to yourself because that's the problem with entrepreneurs is a lot of times we're optimistic and we're like, oh yeah, this 20% credit card will pay itself off because I'm going to double my business. Well, 
95 businesses fail, uh, let alone double. So it's just, it's just, that's why having a coach is really important. Working with someone like you is important because you're kind of the unemotional, like, Hey, like, should I do this? And you're able to ask questions that will highlight real quickly. Is this something that I want to pursue or not? Anything else you want to mention on that? Yeah. Cause I've made some of these mistakes already too, which is why I'm sort of helpful in that way. But when we were first starting my, my, um, my, my blackjack partner and I were first getting started. We had a little bit of money saved up, you know, by the end of college and we, but, but not really enough to put together a full fledged blackjack bankroll. So we started reaching out to literally all of our friends and family, like anyone that we could. Um, we just sort of, what, what we did actually, we ran these numbers uh, showing that based on our play, we should, I know this sounds crazy, but we, we should probably conservatively double our money in a year based on our blackjack play. More realistically, based on our expected value and like the standard deviation, we should triple it. And so we offered a 20% rate of return on the loans after a year. We're just like, if we're going to go to our friends and family, we want to make sure that we're, you know, we're um, returning them some, a decent return on it. And uh, man, th- there's a lot to what happened and, and sort of like it, things were going well for a while, but we were using that as our primary source of income. And so we were drawing from that bankroll sort of left and right to pay for stuff, unexpected stuff too, like a new car. And um, so, yeah, it, we ultimately um, just had more debt to pay back than we had even in our in our bankroll. And so my, my point there is that even if all the numbers look right, um, it can still, there's still just risk involved. Even if it's not just the numbers of the risk, there's other stuff that can just, like we could not have anticipated both of our cars breaking down within a couple of weeks of signing a new apartment lease. It's that kind of stuff. Just you've got to, there is definitely risk involved. That's a, that's a great point. I really appreciate you articulating that because I don't think I've ever had someone on the show articulate like that extra added external unknown events that's in some cases that that can factor into a decision. Um, let's talk about investing. So, you know, spend, spending your money, tracking it, different, different bank accounts. Um, obviously we talked about debt, I guess, before we go into investing, is there anything before that in your framework that you're, that you work with people on? That's like, okay, let's track your, let's track where your money's going. But I imagine the next part is like, okay, how are we going to actually build wealth? And that's through investing. Is there anything I'm missing in between? Uh, not, not really just, just the, the underlying framework, even before, like now I'm doing this more and more is just diving into, I just love to use the word dream, like diving into what do you really want? I know Ramit Sethi likes to use, you know, his term rich life. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's essentially the same thing. Like, what do you want out of life? Because the, the little goals are great to hit first, like just, you know, cover my living expenses. Okay, cool. Like, and that's super important, but if that's all you're shooting for, like this, it's really all you're going to hit and you might even come up short. So like, what do you really want? Not even what do you want necessarily want to have, but like, what kind of life do you want to live? And so that pervades everything that I'm doing, um, whether it's, you know, the, the planning, the investing or whatever it is. I love that, man. And that's again, very aligned and similar to our process. Um, so you get, you get really dialed in on what you want. And then what's the next step is because I know there's two themes to your talk. There's, mm. there's one, it's like, don't gamble or the difference between gambling and investing. And then, then the other one is in the importance of investing in yourself. And I believe that the greatest asset you have in your life is yourself. And that can be used in very manipulative ways that mm. people can lie to themselves. But at the end, at, at the end of the day, so many people are devaluing themselves or diversifying their ability to have an impact. And that's, that breaks my heart because at the end of the day, why are you even investing? Why do, why are we dreaming to begin with? Um, and so how do you work with people and help them number one, invest in themselves and number two, know the difference between investing versus gambling. Yeah. Investing in yourself, it really comes back to that place of what do you want to do to accomplish, you know, to have, uh, for, for, for you, but also for your family and friends and, and everyone else, what do you want your life to look like at that point? Um, one of the biggest things is, certainly today, uh, is just like, what do you want? Not necessarily what kind of work do you want to do, but just like how, what do you want to do on a semi-consistent basis? Or what do you want to create? Cause you don't actually have to choose something that you do for the next 20 years. Like you just might have a project in mind that you really want to create. Is it something that you can make money from? Cool. Uh, if not, maybe you need to set some money aside so you can say, take some time off to, to do that. So there are, 
uh, when it comes to investing in yourself, you start asking these questions and then you think, okay, now based on what I want to achieve, how can I invest in my education, my skill set, my network, mentors, coaches, YouTube, podcasts, you know, any source of information or people and experience that could help me get there faster and with and by making less mistakes along the way. That's wonderful, man. And uh, right. So the and the second part about investing versus gambling, this is something that it's interesting. So I have the perspective having invested through a medium which 99% of people gamble in. And so having that perspective led me to realize that, oh, it's actually not about the vehicle that you're using to you know, buy something or place a bet on something. It's about your knowledge, how you're managing a bankroll, um, you know, what your understanding of the risks associated with this thing are. So, uh, and, and to that point, more realistically for people listening, because I don't think anyone is necessarily running out uh, tomorrow to go try and you know, play blackjack professionally. But this means that in your stock market account, in your crypto account, um, you know, when you are seeing a, an interesting piece of uh, real estate that you want to pick up and, and maybe flip, like just because those vehicles are used to invest does not mean that what you are doing is investing. You may very well be gambling. Yeah. And, can you, and so can you say that again, because I think that's so good. I don't know exactly how, how I said it, but essentially the vehicle that you are placing a bet on or, or buying something through does not determine whether or not you are investing or gambling. It boils down to your knowledge, the way that you are managing your bankroll, your long-term thinking. And part of that knowledge includes the risks associated with it and even outside of it. Like I was talking about before, like we knew the risks inside of the casino and we measured all of that. But then you, um, you know, the, the term black swan is, is that term for a reason, like these unexpected wild, you know, events can happen, a pandemic, you know, the, the craziest things can happen that just completely throw things off. And so you've, and, and a black swan by definition is almost something that you can't anticipate. So um, it, it just is like, look, take calculated risks, but don't just think that because you are, you know, involving yourself in these assets uh, like stocks or crypto or real estate or gold or literally anything that people commonly invest in. Don't just assume that you are investing because you're participating in it. You might be gambling. Yeah. A lot of people like to make fun of the investment, but it really is the investor, which yes. get the mirror, get the mirror because you're looking at yourself. Um, one of my favorite, like, you know, phrases, it's not, it's not really a phrase, but people are like, well, the stock market is risky or option trading is risky. And for even you, it's like gambling is risky. And it's like, yes, maybe it depends. Um, and I've just, I think when I first started, I was so much more like definite about this is good, this is bad. And then, and now, now that I have a little bit more life experience and I'm sure 20 years from now, I'll just laugh at this statement. Cause I'm like, I didn't know anything at this age, yeah, but it's same. like, I just realized like, man, it really depends on the person, what their goals are, what their expertise is. And it's like, I, you could go into the most basic investment where there's like no lose and it still might be a bad <laughs> investment for this person, but I won't be the ignorant person that says crypto is horrible or option trading is horrible or the market's horrible. Cause it really goes back to the who and I can make this, this statement is that most people are investing in areas that they have no expertise in. And as a result, um, they, in most cases, will, will not get the kind of results that experts would. Um, yep. And so that's about all I have to say about that. Even as something as straightforward as an S&P 500 ETF, that is almost like uh, one of the easiest, I won't even say the best, but it's just one of the easiest ways that you can get your money working for you. Past you know, a historical value doesn't predict future, but over the last hundred or so years, it's averaged out about 10% a year. Despite that being an ideal investment for many people, if you don't understand it, like if you don't actually understand what's happening, if you don't understand what typically happens in the cycles that it goes through, you could buy that share one day, sell it six months later because it's dropped and buy it back again, you know, or, or a thousand share, whatever it might be. And you buy back it again. And, and now you are trying to time the market, which is, not typically a good idea for most people. So uh, that just, I think, further hits home the point that you look at even one of the most ideal investments for many people, and yeah. you can easily turn it to a, into a gamble. Dalbar did a study, and it essentially is looking at like the last 30 years, and you're right, the S&P with no fees got over 10% every single year, but the average investor got less than 5%. How is that wow. possible? That's crazy. Fees, emotions, you know, 
uh, many mutual funds underperform just the straight up ETF of the S&P 500. And so it's just, it is just very interesting to say like, man, like what is the variable? Well, it, there's other variables, not just you, but I think the biggest variable in that scenario is the emotion. And um, if people don't really have an underlying reason or framework to be in something, they freak out when, you know, crypto or the market drops and they sell at the wrong time. My other criticism to just the market in general is what's your end game? Um, and again, yeah. I, I, I will also want to say sometimes the best way to learn is to do. So if you're just someone that's like, well, I don't, I'm not an investor, so I'm just going to put my money in a savings account. Like we're not saying that, but we're just right. saying like either work with someone that is an expert or pursue that. And really I'm a big fan of frameworks. And so whatever you do, really try to understand why you're doing it and what the goal is. And my challenge to people that have their money in 401ks or Roth IRAs or, or the market is just understand the underlying reason you have it and what, what the end game is, how, how you're going to spend that money, how you're going to get that money out. Uh, because I I'm shocked on how many people are like a year away from retirement, have a nest egg and don't even understand how retirement distribution or income works. Mm. And I think it's ignorance, but we're not necessarily taught that when it comes to investing. Yeah. And you can dip your toes into any of these things. Just don't go ham first yeah. time that you want to, you know, get into something new. Like, um, and and it, it's it's easier in some aspects than others. So if you want to buy one share of an S&P 500 ETF, you'll spend typically less than $500. And maybe that sounds like a lot, but it's, it's I, I, I can pretty definitively say it's not in the grand scheme of what you would actually learn from buying that one share, um, no matter what level of income you're at. Um, the other, like sometimes with real estate, it can be a bit tougher to sort of dip your feet in. That just takes a bit more work to uh, build your network and hook up with people that are basically putting the majority of the money forward. You can put a little bit down because even having like five bucks in any, like no matter what the investment is, you're going to pay more attention into it. You have now just physically put some skin in the game. So you don't need to just go all in to sort of get the experience like, you know, uh, network. Uh, this this is not something you can do necessarily tomorrow, but if you don't have people around you that are investing in an asset that you want to, uh, set that as an intention, work towards it for the next year or two years, I guarantee you will build a network of people around you. Part of investing in myself is if I put money behind something, I'll care way more about it. And so mm. that's just, again, there's, I'm not even going to give examples because I don't want to give investment advice or mislead anybody, but just at the end of the day, if you're interested in something, if you're interested in real estate, use your money in either gaining knowledge or use your money as a way to just understand the underlying investment more. And so when it comes to working with entrepreneurs in the UFC, what were some of the big things that you've learned? Any funny stories as it relates to your journey? I, I know that I don't want you to have to say anything that's confidential, but um, I, the UFC is a kind of a small niche, niche group of people. Um, all I know about the UFC is what Jake Paul says about their pay. <laughs> so I don't even know if that's yeah. true or not. Um, but I'm just curious from a standpoint of like, what, what are some of the highlights and what, what can we learn as entrepreneurs or someone that wants to be intentional with our money in, in your journey of working with the UFC and entrepreneurs? UFC fighters typically only get paid two or three times a year. So even before we get into the discussion of like how much they're making at those times, like that is just so freaking wild to think that you are only making money two or three times a year. Of course, they might, some uh, some uh, fighters will have sponsorship deals. Uh, some will teach, uh, you know, MMA at their gym that they train at so they can make some extra money. But their most of their income, generally speaking, is coming two or three times a year. Or merch is, is another income source for some. Uh, so that's what initially drew me to the UFC. In addition to just my interest, having been watching it since I was like 14 years old. And um, I, I just thought, wow, if there's any one group of people that I can help manage their money, it's, it's them. So that requires a very like specific and intentional way of managing money because when you make a mistake on a regular, let's say biweekly salary, the worst that happens is, I mean, you can make some, some really big mistakes, but like you're going to get paid in another couple of weeks, right? Like at, at, almost at worst at that point, you're missing out on, on gains that you could be yep. gaining from, you know, but when you screw up uh, with a paycheck that you need to make last oftentimes for like six months or longer, because just because they generally fight two or three times a year, like injuries can happen with either them or their opponent. They can get, you know, either one can get sick. So uh, it, it really requires that you just be very, very intentional with it to like the most extreme, which means you need to take a look at how much you think you're going to need for the next six months. Most people 
aren't doing that, or at the very least, they're not looking at their emergency fund in that way. It's more of like, if something happens, like a, a, a car or house repair, like I'll take care of that. Also, the classic Dave Ramsey says, okay, if you get fired from your job, you should have money set aside to, you know, get another one. But this goes out to a deeper level. It's like, you know, how do I want to use my money as a, as an individual, just pursuing these different things throughout my life? Like I probably should have some extra cash just for many reasons. Um, and in terms of uh, specific lessons for other folks, I would say, cause like stuff that I've learned is as you start making more money, you start thinking that like you have to do more with it to get a better return. Like, oh, I can't possibly just invest in the S&P 500. And, and of course, there are more advanced tactics, but I would just say I've seen many people, as they start to make more money, make some really stupid investment yeah. decisions with it, which are 100% gambles. Yeah. Uh, so I, I would take that from it as well. So when, when it comes to UFC, are you recommending more than a six-month emergency fund, essentially since they may not fight for six months or what is your thoughts before even you get into investing? Yeah, it's six months is a solid number of months. It, it depends. Like if they're very active and they want to get fights and they have a good relationship with their manager and they know like, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to fight in the next couple of months, then we might stick to six months because a lot of them still have student loans and credit card debt and back taxes. Oh my gosh. Because you know, when you come into entrepreneurship, you're not used to setting aside, you know, your, your own uh, self-employment tax. So um, a lot of them have a lot of debt still. And so, yeah, putting a, a good cushion aside is, is probably first. It's not probably, it is first. Then from there, we can tackle the high interest debts and start looking at investments moving forward. Um, I, I'm assuming these people can't get disability insurance. I'm, I'm thinking no one would underwrite them. Is there any type of like insurance that they can get from a standpoint of like, if they get crushed, that they can uh, get income? Yeah, probably not disability insurance, but I know the UFC covers, as far as I know, the UFC covers any injuries that they sustain inside of the the ring, the octagon. Right. Um, but outside of it, I mean, anything can happen when you're training, you know, on a right. daily basis, putting your body through the works. So that is, uh, yeah, I, I'm really not sure. Yeah. By the way, if any company says, hey, we'll insure UFC fighters, let's not work with them because that's <laughs> probably like, yeah, they, they might be a little lax on the underwriting. Um, yeah. And what's, what's interesting is uh, entrepreneurship, is very similar to mm -hmm. UFC because it's like, we're not getting paid every two weeks in most cases, especially if you're starting your business. And so it's, it's again, being, being, um, really conscientious of that. And I would just say one thing that I've seen in young entrepreneurs that are starting, they understand investing and they start making their first money. And then mm. I think one of the biggest mistakes is they invest it. And sometimes you invest in things that are not even liquid, meaning you can't access it. And as a result of that, it's like, man, things get tough in business and your war chest is thin if, if, and some, some have none because they're so optimistic. Yeah. And so it's like, have an optimism, always be optimistic, but like be pessimistic when you're thinking about saving. And, and again, I, I'm more on the six months to nine months to maybe a year because I kind of go into the psychology of money from a standpoint of, if your business is what you think it is and you're like dedicating your life to it and you really believe in it make sure you're handling your money in such a way that you're not going to kill the goose that's laying the golden egg. Um, yeah. But there's a fine balance. There's that balance of like, okay, now we got to diversify and, and invest in some other things and whether that's in, in other businesses or real estate. So it's, it is finding that balance. But what I've seen is people try to invest too soon and they kind of cut their hand off. Um, and so any thoughts on that? Yeah. In my personal experience, I, I, I love your takeaways from the psychology of money. I've gone through that book now a couple of times. And that point that he says, like the ROI on your savings is not the, the just mathematically zero or less than zero because of inflation. Yeah. My own personal experience. So as I started, let's see, I started my business in 2020 offering financial coaching brought, I was telling you this just a little bit before, but every client that I brought on, I got through cold outreach. And after a while I was like, you know, I don't, want to build a business that is solely relying on cold outreach and like, yeah, referrals or whatever, but I wanted more people reaching out to me. And so I had money set aside. And so I stopped all my cold outreach to force myself to learn how to market myself better. Um, and, but like, I only could have done that if I had money set aside. And so for months for, it was probably a four or five month span. I didn't take on any new clients apart from like a, a small number of referrals 
eventually I started, that's when I started putting myself out there more, you know, reaching out to more podcasts, trying to be out more on social and, and now business has picked back up because of it. But again, I couldn't have done that had I invested everything that I had made straight away into the stock market. Chris, I could talk to you all day. I, I appreciate how you articulate things and the love of life that you have. Let's transition into my last question, which is a legacy question. And it essentially goes like this. This is your last day on earth and you're with the people that you love the most. You can't give them a book. You can't give them this episode that we recorded. You can't give them anything other than a conversation. What are you going to make sure to highlight in that last conversation? Life can be an amazing thing when we're present together. It, that's so true because I think so so often we run through life and we don't realize what a gift it is. And that is why it's called the present. <laughs> and it's like, man, it's, it's, it's so true. That's one thing that I've been learning from a standpoint of like this, when people say, enjoy the process. And I'm like, man, I don't know what you mean because I like, I'm so futuristic driven. But when I reflect back on some of the greatest memories I've had in business, it's when I was living at home, <laughs> when I wasn't making any money when we were using our profits to go buy Chinese food and just, you know, we were living off of the dream. And it was funny because back then I was like, man, I, I couldn't dream to be where I am now. And it's so funny because it's like, if you don't, if you're not willing to be present, you're just going to always be on this, this, uh, road to what if. And so 100% agree, man. I 100% love, uh, your whole um, conversation and frameworks. How can people support what you're doing? How can they get in touch with you and follow your journey? Well, thank you, Caleb, because I really appreciate you and, and you speak very eloquently yourself and have made a lot of the points that I've been talking about much more succinctly. And so I, I like that and appreciate that. Uh, if you want to get in touch with me, so I'm having a whole bunch of fun on TikTok. Um, I'm not sure when you'll release this, Caleb, but I've got a 21-part blackjack and card counting series dropping on TikTok on Friday, February 18th at 12 noon Eastern. So um, if uh, I'm sure this is going to come out after that, but you can go to my TikTok at Chris Allen Hannah with uh, no H at the end of that Hannah. And then there's an underscore at the end to check that out. And if you have uh, just really resonated with me and, and want to get a conversation going, you can shoot me a text at 240-630-0568 and someone, uh, either myself or someone on my team will get back to you. I love it. I love it. And we'll also put your website there uh, in the show notes as well. But uh, yeah, TikTok, you have, a, you have a video at the time of this recording that has almost 2 million views, 1.6, I believe, to be exact. And um, it's just really cool to see people like yourself take off on that platform. And so there's a very, very good chance whenever this uh, comes out that um, you'll be able to go on over and check out money concepts and blackjack tips. And just remember, this is not investment advice. So don't, don't lose right, all your exactly. money in Vegas and then blame this episode, okay? It's not exactly. investing, but you can have a lot of fun with it. Um, hey, thank you so much. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful you're in my life. Thank you, Caleb. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could hit subscribe, leave a review, and share this with the people that you know and love.